This is a Courageous Church podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. We have been in a series called The Gospel of John, and we've been working through the Gospel of John verse by verse. It's one of my absolute favorite things to do, which is to take us verse by verse. When you go verse by verse, you're kind of limited to what the text says. You don't get just to kind of say whatever you want. You gotta actually say what the text says, which is a good thing, amen? It means we have to sometimes explore issues that are uncomfortable and deal with things that confront us, right, where we are. We don't get to just pick and choose what we like. Come on, somebody. We, we don't get just to cherry pick. No, we get to allow the word of God, the full counsel of God's word. We believe this is the inspired word of God and we get to allow it to, to come in to speak to us directly. And so we've been walking through the gospel of John. And for those that haven't been with us, and it's your first time just to catch you up. The, the question that the writer, John, is asking or seeking to uh, answer is this. Is Jesus the Messiah? Is he the, the son of the living God? Is he the Christ? Is he the saving one, the anointed one, the scandalous one, the redeeming one? Who is this Jesus? And what does Jesus say about himself? And if he is the Messiah, what kind of Messiah is he? And I don't mean like as in like you, there's multiple saviors, but I mean like, what's he like? Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So in one sense, we're asking, what is Jesus like? But we're also, we're also asking, what is God like? Because we believe that God wanted to reveal himself to us in and through the person of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. So we're answering or we're seeking to answer this central question today, can Jesus be the Messiah? And if so, what kind of Messiah is he? And you see at this point in the story, by John chapter eight, word is beginning to spread about who Jesus is. His miracles, his teachings, his appearances among the people, all of these things are creating quite a stir. And before we get to our text today, I just want us to consider just some of the unique claims that Jesus has already made within just this chapter alone. Can I put it up there? Claims like, I am the light of the world. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. If you knew me, you would know my Father as well. You are from below and I am from above. How about this one? If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. We talked about that a few weeks ago. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed in my personal favorite. You are of the Father the devil and your will is to do your Father's desires. Jesus is causing quite a stir because he's saying these kinds of things that nobody else ever said before. No one makes the kinds of claims that Jesus does. And as a church, we're so passionate about Jesus. We say it's all about Jesus because only Jesus makes the kinds of claims that Jesus makes. And as I said, these are creating quite a stir. He's riling people up. Now, pause with me just a moment. Oftentimes, when we read these things, we read them as stories about them. But today, I want us to put ourselves into the story. I want us to read this as a story about us and to us. Are you with me today? Here in this part of John's gospel, Jesus is still in the temple court, and he's teaching. It's the same day as the end of the festival. We talked about this a few weeks ago, and Jesus isn't done. He's about to deliver what I would call a striking blow to any doubt as to whether or not he is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And he's going to do so by his own admission and claim. Now we get to our text. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 48. And here's what it says. And the Jews answered Jesus, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? 
Now, the reason I highlighted or emboldened these words, Samaritan and demon, is because I want us to understand both culturally and contextually what is happening here. It's very easy to miss. This is a cultural diss on Jesus, and it's also a psychological attack. Now, I want to talk about these two things real briefly before we get into the meat of the message today. This cultural diss, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan? Why Samaritan? And this psychological attack, are we not right in saying that you are demonized, that you're crazy? Okay, now regarding the first one, we all know that Jesus is Jewish, right? He's speaking to a Jewish audience. And at this time in history, Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. They hated each other. They viewed each other as despicable and unworthy neighbors. And there was great conflict between them. Now, I want to give you guys a little bit of history here, okay? So I'm going to put on my teacher's hat and just speak historically to you. Historically speaking, a thousand years before Jesus showed up on the scene, Israel was divided into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom and you had the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom consisted of Samaria and the southern kingdom consisted of Judea. Jerusalem and Judea were together. Samaria in the north and the region of Dan were, were together. And these two opposing kingdoms were at war with each other. It would kind of be like in the Civil War days when we had the North and the South. You had the Southerners and you had the Yankees, and they were at odds with each other. Ethnically, they were the same, but they had some differences. And what had happened was the Northern kings began to turn to idol worship, pagan worship. They began to intermix the worship of Yahweh of creator God with the worship of other idols and other pagan gods. And so they started setting up altars to these other gods. Those in the South saw this as an abomination. They saw this as, a, as a, an affront, as an assault on the worship of God himself. And so there was this war over worship. And I want to say that there is still a war, war going on over worship today. The question I would submit to you is, who's going to get your worship is the world gonna get your worship? Is entertainment gonna get your worship? Is your job or your spouse or even your kids gonna get your worship? It's real easy in today's culture to put our kids up on platforms and to worship them through sports and activities and all these other things and to, to reorient our lives to make sure our kids are happy. And what are we doing? We're giving our kids our worth-ship. Maybe it's not kids, maybe it's money. Maybe you're, you're somebody who's just always in pursuit of money. You just think about money, you wake up, it's money, 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 money. It's, I gotta close the deal, I gotta do the transaction, I gotta make more money. Maybe it's power. It's like, man, if I could just get more power. Maybe it's sex, if I could just have more sex, right? And so you spend your, your life trying to fill this void in this gap. Some of you are, are elbowing your neighbor right now and that's hilarious. <laughs> Whatever that thing is, if you give your worth to it, you're essentially worshiping. And here in the middle of, of this, this conflict, Jesus has stepped into the temple and he's teaching with the words of life. He's teaching with the words of God. And they've accused him of being a Samaritan. They're, they're using an ethnic slur to diss Jesus because of this ancient conflict. It's why Jesus, when he comes to the woman in Samaria on the mountain, says this in John 4, and Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain in Samaria nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. See the battle, the conflict for worship? 
You worship what you don't know. You worship blindly, but we worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in what? Spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So there's this conflict going on over worship, and Jesus has stepped right into the middle of it. And I believe that if we would allow him today, that he wants to step right into the conflict for our worship as well and say some things to us. Additionally, there was another conflict in that Samaria had another problem. In the year 732, the Assyrians swooped down and they conquer the northern kingdom. And the, the kings that conquered, the Assyrian kings that conquered the north, set their puppet kings and installed Gentiles into the land, people that didn't worship Yahweh, didn't worship the Lord. And these people began to intermarry and intermix and intersperse with the people in the north, with Samaritans. And so the Jews despised them for this reason and didn't see them as being ethnically or culturally Jewish. In other words, they considered them half-breeds or mongrels, not worthy of worship. And so there was this battle over who's worshiping right, who's worshiping where, who gets to worship, who gets to come to the temple. And they set up all this division, all this strife, all this religious conflict. And truth be told, nothing's really changed. We still see that in our world today, don't we? People fighting with each other, even the, within the church, people throwing stones and, no, we do it right. No, you do it wrong. No, house church is the right way to do it. No, big church is the right way. No, we got to do it in a wooden chapel. No, we got to do it in a, in a theater, right? And there's just this conflict over what and where and how we worship. So this is what's happening in the backdrop of them calling Jesus a Samaritan. They're, they're pointing to this. So in verse 48, when they call him a Samaritan, they're dissing him. They're, they're culturally putting him down. And it's actually revealed a really big issue in their heart. Can I tell you something? Racism isn't new. Racism is always a heart issue. And what makes it a heart issue means that it's also a sin issue because sin flows out of the heart. It's more than just an attitude or the sentiment. It's about the condition of your heart toward other people. It's about how you view the world and view those around you. In their hearts, they hated Samaritans because... They believed that they were better than them. They believed that they were better than them. They believed that they had it right and that those Samaritans had it wrong. Now, lest we be too harsh on them, don't we do the same thing with other people? Don't we look at people and judge them by their appearances and by their history and by their ethnicity and by their family and by their level of education and affluence? And Right? Don't we do that? I'm speaking to some of you believers now. Come on. Don't we look at what people write on Facebook and how they vote and what flags they put in their lawns? Come on. And we hold condescending beliefs about them in our hearts, right? Or even worse, we ignore them altogether. And this is why Jesus would later tell the story of a good Samaritan, because this is the context. The Jews are like, how can a Samaritan be good? He's a half-breed. He doesn't belong in Jerusalem. He's a pagan. He's a Gentile. She's a, a Gentile. She's a pagan, right? How can they be good? And yet this is the exact person that Jesus uses as the hero in the story he tells. You guys know it, right? A man's walking up the road to where? Jerusalem. Jerusalem's up on a mountain in case you haven't been there. In Israel, you ascend the mountain to get to, into Jerusalem. A 
A man's walking and he, and he comes upon robbers. The robbers rob him, beat him and leave him for dead. And then a priest walks by, a Jewish priest walks by and has nothing to do with them. And then a Levite, which is like a, a pure priest, walks by and has nothing to do with them. But then a Samaritan comes and takes care of them. That's where we get the phrase a good Samaritan from. But this is the context. So to a, a Jewish man at this time, how could a Samaritan be good? Jesus is subverting their expectation of what they considered good, of who was in and who was out. That's why he says, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship, because the Father seeks those that will worship in spirit and in truth. The title of my message today is Jesus the Truth Teller. I believe Jesus wants to speak some truth into our lives. And right now we are living in a culture that is propped up and being fabricated by lies. And I wonder if maybe some of those things have crept into some of our beliefs as well. So let me ask you, before we move on, which we're going to do, how's your heart toward your neighbor in this season? I know it's election week coming up, and I know there's a lot of tension over, over politics and what we believe and who we think's best qualified. And, and, and listen, I get it, right? We need to make good decisions. We need to vote. We need to use our voice. We need to do all those things, okay? But how's our heart towards those that we disagree with? Do we walk past them on the other side when we see their signs or do we stop and pray for them? Tell you what, that's what I'm wrestling with. Can I just be transparent? That's what God's put his big holy finger in my business about. Like rather than judge them, why don't you just stop and just pray? Maybe better yet, like, you know, serve them, love them. Ask how you can help them. It's a great time to do that, right? Halloween, get out. Everybody's knocking on doors, passing out candy. You know, go love your neighbor. Come on, I know it's, it's, it's difficult. I get it. A lot of us, we love our anonymity. We love our, our, our palaces. We, we, we open our garage door. We slip in. We close the garage door. We don't have to talk to anybody. You know you do it. Come on, I do it too. Sometimes I'm like, I, just, I can't deal with people today, right? I get it. There's grace for that. But listen, this is an opportunity for us to reach out and to love people and to pray for people. And I believe that's a part of what Jesus wants us to do. So they're, they're putting their finger on this 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 tension, this, this cultural conflict and tension. And, and then they up their ante by saying, and isn't it right that you have a demon? So they accuse Jesus of being demonized. So they're attacking him psychologically at this point. They're essentially calling him crazy. They're calling him nuts. And in some ways, they're even kind of gaslighting him here because Jesus has actually come to cast out demons and to turn the tables on the devil and his kingdom, and they use this kind of language and tactic against him, against Jesus. Do you see how they're doing this? Do you see how manipulative this is? Now, I wanna tell you something. Beware of when religious people attempt to gaslight you and make you feel like you're the crazy one when you confront them with loving truth. This is going on in some of your lives right now. You've got relatives, you've got friends, you've got neighbors where it's like, hey, I wanna speak loving truth but they turn it around and make you feel like you're the nut, nutty one. Anybody ever experienced that? Just me? Okay, some of you have as well. Beware of when people do this, and it's amazing to me how many people I've met, even inside and outside the church, that will skirt accountability by using this tactic and technique. Now, we've all seen this happen in our lives, or we've been you know, acquainted with this in some way. But a lot of times what I think we fail to miss is when people do this, oftentimes they're doing this because they've been hurt or offended. And as the old saying goes, hurt people, hurt people. 
And so sometimes it's really easy for us to take that personally, right? We take it personally. But what we fail to recognize is that they're hurt. They're hurting. And they're crying out for help. In this story, Jesus is dealing with some very hurting and offended people. And I want you to notice the nature of his rebuttal to this, continuing in verse 49. Here's what it says. And Jesus answered them. Here it is. Here's his response. I don't have a demon, you guys, but I honor my father. And you dishonor me. You dishonor me. Yet I don't seek my own glory. Jesus is like, listen, guys, I'm not here trying to build a name for myself. There's only one who seeks it, and he is the judge. He's speaking of his father. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So how does Jesus respond to people gaslighting him and calling him crazy and nuts and dissing him culturally? Does he punch him in the throat? No. That's what I want to do sometimes, right? That's what you want to do sometimes, right? That's what Jeff wants to do sometimes. <laughs> but this is not how Jesus responds. He doesn't get into a fleshly altercation. You know what he does instead? He appeals to the truth. Just listen to it in, his, in, in these truth statements that he makes here. I honor my father and you dishonor me. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Just truth after truth after truth after truth after truth. He just starts making an appeal to the truth. He doesn't get down in the weeds with the weasels. Some of you guys get sucked into these arguments with people and with, and, and with those that want to gaslight you and frustrate you and trick you and trap you. And you need to just appeal to the truth. You need to allow the truth to speak a better word over your life. And this is what we see Jesus do. You can't debate with liars because, are you ready for it? They lie. They lie. And like Jesus has already said, they lie because they are of their father, the devil, and they seek only to do their father's desires. Jesus would tell us earlier in the chapter that the, the father of all lies is Satan, and he's been lying from the beginning, which means that if you believe the lie, you empower the liar in your life. You see, when we as Christians make the claim that Jesus conquered sin, death, and the devil at the cross, we're saying the devil is defeated, but you know what? Even a defeated foe can still lie to you. Even a, a crippled, crushed-in snake can come around and still whisper lies into your, into your ears. So if you allow him to do that and you begin to believe those lies, you begin to empower his presence in your life. You're like, well, I thought he was defeated under my feet. He is if you keep him there. But if you entertain him and open the door to him and snuggle up in bed with him and let him speak and whisper his slithering snake tongue lies into your life and you begin to allow those things to permeate your being and you begin to believe those things and you begin to allow those things to define you, you're empowering him to have power in your life that was already taken away and stripped away from him at the cross. And that's the tension that we live in. It's like when people go, I thought I have the victory. You do if you walk in the victory. If you, if you allow the truth to be your defense and your shield and your fortress that you run to in times of trouble, rather than all of the lies and the fabrications and distractions of the enemy, then you will live in the truth and you will know the truth. And as Jesus said last week, the truth will set you free. That's it. So Jesus steps right into this, this challenge and he begins to speak truth. He begins to appeal to truth. And I will say this, the truth will always outlive the lie. 
Some of us are so quick to want to want to be vindicated and made right when we're lied about that we rush into conflicts that we have no business being in. Rather than allowing the truth, to speak a better word, rather than allowing the truth to outlive and outlast the lie. And I've seen this in my life. Every time I've tried to take matters into my own hands and I've sought vengeance and I've sought justice, like Batman, I am vengeance. You know, I've just stepped into that mix and I'm trying to like make it happen in the flesh. It never ends well. I always regret it. You do too. But when I've allowed God in his word and in his truth to defend me, I don't have to go out and try to defend the truth. The truth can defend itself. And it will outlast any lie that's ever spoken about you because it cancels out the lies in the same way that light cancels out darkness. As I said a month ago, I've never walked into a room, flipped on a light switch, and the dark was like, no, no, hold on, wait, wait, no. Instantly, the light invades the darkness, and the darkness has to succumb to it. It's the same way with truth and lies. We're talking about truth and lies. If you know the truth and you walk in the truth, you'll know it's freedom. And if you hold to it and profess it and speak it, you'll walk in it all the days of your life, and no one can rob that and take that away from you. That's God's gift to us as the people of God, that we would be people of the truth and know the truth, and walk in its freedom, because Jesus is the truth teller. And if we have the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit living in us, then we have the spirit of truth alive in us, and we can cling to that today. Some of us are okay with Jesus being the truth. Some of us are okay with Jesus speaking truth, but we get a little nervous when then he calls upon us to confront people lovingly with truth. What's our response? Ephesians chapter four, verse 14, spells it out very nicely for us, I think. Verse 14, then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth. This is what's going on in our culture right now. There's a lot of deception. A lot of people trying to trick you into believing lies about your life, about your identity, about who you are in Christ. But Paul says to the Ephesians here, then we'll no longer be, when, when we become people of truth, this is the reality. Instead, we will speak the truth in love and we will grow in every way more and more like who? Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. Did you catch that? When people try to trick us with lies, what is our response? We speak the truth in love. We speak the truth in love, which means that we don't have to be jerks about it. Okay? Jesus doesn't give you a license because you know the truth to be a jerk about the truth. He calls us to speak it in love. Truth is the message. Love is the method. Can I say it again? Truth is the message, but love is the method. Love's the vehicle that it needs to travel in from our mouth to others, amen? And this is challenging. It is, it's hard but it's necessary if we're gonna become the kinds of people here that Ephesians 4 tells us we're to become. Mature, not immature children, not those that are tossed about by the changing tides of the wind and the, the waves and all the things that come after us, right? Not easily influenced. God wants us to be so secure, so rooted, so anchored in who we are in Christ Jesus and his word that we're not easily influenced. What does Romans tell us? Do not be what? Conformed to the image and the patterns of the world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do we renew our minds, church? By getting in his word. 
and allowing his word and his truth to wash over our minds and to, to recalibrate and transform the way we think and the way we see ourselves. This is like a mirror. And every time you go into it, you get an accurate reflection of who you really are and who you were created to be anew in Christ Jesus. But some of us, instead of going to the mirror of, of the word, we go to the mirror of the world and we allow the world to influence us and to give us a, a distorted picture and image of who we are. And then we wonder why we're depressed. We wonder why we have anxiety. We wonder why we have fear. We wonder why we're not walking in freedom. We wonder why we're not walking in the promise of God. We wonder why all the things that we read about in this Bible aren't happening for us. Because we're not going to the image of the word, we're going to the image of the world. And see, this was the, the original sin, if you want to call it that man and woman, alive in the garden, beautiful, naked and unashamed, praise God, together in glory with the Father, in perfect harmony, in perfect community with him, walking, talking, speaking, breathing, living in their purpose, alive in it. And then the enemy comes in and he begins to speak what? Lies and deception and gets them to take their focus off of God and being made in his image and likeness and begin to question that and begin to look toward other sources. Did God really say? Does God really have my best interest at heart? Right, those are things that we think about. Does he, is he really bothered by me sleeping with my boyfriend or girlfriend? Is he really bothered when I cheat on my taxes? Is he really bothered when I blow my leaves into my neighbor's yard? <laughs> I was, I, was, I was blowing leaves the other day and, and, I, and I got a little carried away and it started getting windy and I noticed all my leaves were flowing into my neighbor's yard. He was like, hey, what are you doing? I'm like, I'll come and clean it up, I promise. I felt really bad. But that's the crux of it. It's, it's not just on Sunday. It's Monday through Saturday when we're with our friends and our neighbors and people, right? How, how are we representing Christ? Are we representing the truth? Or are, we, are we being influenced and conformed to lies and, and patterns of lies. This also means that when we speak the truth in love, we have to trust God with the outcome of it. We don't love people to control people. That's not love, that's manipulation. If someone says that they love you and all they're doing is trying to control you, that's not love. We trust God with the outcome of truth spoken in love because we believe that it's ultimately up to him and up to that person and what they receive and what God does in their life and their heart. But we don't try to take over force outcomes. We don't get our way, we don't get our will. Things don't happen the way we want. We, we, we start, right, trying to assert our dominance, start trying to take over. No, we trust God with outcomes. We let God be God and every man be a liar. We let the truth be spoken in love and we trust God to go to work in it, amen? Now we come to the rub, verse 52. And the Jews said to Jesus, in response to Jesus saying these things, now we know that you have a demon. So and there's a big exclamation mark there. So they're super ticked off. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say to us, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. So Jesus, you make this outrageous claim about not tasting death. How can you say this? How can you bring Abraham into the equation? Are you greater than our father Abraham? Once again, they're appealing to their ethnic heritage, to their Jewishness, who died, and the prophets who died. So they're standing in this tradition, 
and they're saying, Jesus, are you better than this? Are you greater than this? Who do you make yourself out to be? Now we're getting down to the nitty gritty. This is the question that they really want to know. Who do you make yourself? Who are you, Jesus? Who are you? And they're in shock by what Jesus has just said, and rightfully so. But notice this question. Who do you make yourself out to be? This is the question that we started with at the beginning. The central question. Who is Jesus? What kind of Messiah is he? And ironically, in trying to trap him, and trying to trick him, and trying to do all that they can to stop him, they come face to face with the living God. They've actually come face to face with who the Father is wanting to reveal himself to be in and through the person of Jesus Christ. Here it is, verse 54. And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him, ouch. I know him. And if I were to say that I don't know him, I would be a liar like you are. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and in fact, he saw it and was glad. What a remarkable claim Jesus makes here. He says rightfully that it's the father who glorifies him, and then he ups the stakes by saying that he knows the father and keeps his word, and then he ups the stakes again and says by claiming that Abraham, who has since died, right, thousands of years before, has seen Jesus in the flesh, has seen his coming, and was glad. This remarkable claim. Now, I don't know what some of you believe about the afterlife. I don't know what some of you believe about the resurrection. But this would seem to validate the fact that Abraham, who has since passed in the flesh, is still very much alive in the spirit. And indeed, we believe that he is. What's also amazing to me is that all the promises that God made to Abraham about what he would, uphold, what he would obtain and what he would see actually come to pass in eternity. And Abraham is made a witness of it. He gets to see it happen. And why this is encouraging to me is because it means that even if you and I don't get to see the fulfillment of what God promises to us here on earth, we will one day get to see that fulfillment in heaven. All the more reason to have hope. All the more reason to leave a legacy, right? What we do matters. Verse 57, so the Jews said to him, Jesus, you're not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. They're kind of getting hung up on this point. But Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, and here's where he's about to drop the sledgehammer. Before Abraham was, I am. Now, for some of you, it's easy to, to miss this, but as Pastor Jim taught a few weeks back, when Jesus makes this statement, he's tapping into the I am statements of God. When Moses asked God for his name. He said, I am that I am. It's the word we translate the word Yahweh into. We were singing about it this morning. I love, I just love the names of God. Elohim, El Shaddai, great I am. This is the reality that Jesus is pointing them to. And he's making the claim about himself. Before Abraham was and existed, I am. <laughs> and this is, this is so amazing and it's so easy to miss, but I don't want us to, to miss this. Jesus makes this statement about being the great I am. Why does Jesus say that? Because he's telling them the truth. Because he's the truth teller. Because he's come not to speak lies, not to fabricate, not to get their hopes up. He's, he's come to tell them the truth. And he's telling them, I am. As if to say, 
I'm God. <laughs> you guys, this is why they sought to crucify him. Not because he was a great teacher and said provocative things, he did those things. Not because he was a prophet and angered them and put his finger in their business, he did those things. Not because he performed miracles or you know, worked on the Sabbath, he did all those things. But because he claimed to be God. Because he made this claim, before Abraham was, I am. And we see the response to it in the very next verse. Verse 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Their response, who do you think you are, Jesus? Jesus' response, I am God. Now, we look at this and we're like, okay, cool, all right. What's the big deal? The big deal is that Jesus makes claims that nobody else makes and then backs them up. It's for this reason that they sought to murder him. From this point on in the story, their response toward Jesus is going to change. And I believe, like them, we have a decision to make. At some point in our story, we have to make up our minds about who we believe Jesus to be. Is he just a great teacher? Is he a great teller of moral truths? Is he a great prophet? What is he? Well, I like the way C.S. Lewis says it. He says... You have to make up your mind about who you think Jesus is. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. He hasn't left the door open to him just being a great moral teacher. A great moral teacher doesn't make claims that he is God, right? So either he's lying or he's crazy. C.S. Lewis is a madman or he's telling the truth. And he is who he says he is. We all have to make up our mind about who Jesus is and wants to be in our life. So in closing, that's my final question to you. Who do you say he is today? Is Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God? Is he your Savior? Is he your Redeemer? Is he the one who's writing a new story? And if you haven't made up your mind about who Jesus is yet, that's okay. We want to be a place where people can come and wrestle through that for themselves. We're not here to focus any energy or any spotlight on you or where you're at in your journey. We just wanna be a people that are willing to ask the questions and speak truth in love, where you can wrestle and journey with us as we're going through the story of God together. Maybe you're here today and you've been battling lies. You've been battling lies that are spoken over you spoken about you, can I encourage you today? Let Jesus be the defender of truth in your life. Let him defend what is true in your life. Maybe you're here and you're not sure yet about who Jesus is, but I will say this, he will never lie to you. Man will lie to you. People will lie to you. Even preachers will lie to you. That's why I always tell you as a church, see that what I'm saying is in here, please. But Jesus will never lie to you because he is the way, the truth, and the life. He's not a truth. He's not my truth. He's not your truth. He's the truth. And in a world that's gone insane, we need some true north, don't we? We need truth. 
So I wonder if you'd open your heart to receive truth today. Wherever you are, maybe you're watching this online, maybe you're listening to this podcast, I wanna encourage you and I wanna challenge you to open your heart to receive the truth, to allow what Jesus says about himself to be true in your life. Thank you for listening today. If you were blessed and you want to be a part of what God is doing through Courageous Church, including ways that you can give, visit us online at CourageousChurch.com.